The Lead from the Heart podcast is sponsored by Mitel Networks, a Canadian-based telecommunications company with offices all around the world. Mitel's goal is to create a company culture that inspires courage, empathy, and kindness, and it seeks to be part of the global movement to build humane workplaces where people want to come and do great work. Mitel is also very proud to be the sole sponsor of this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about them, find them at mitel.com forward slash Mark. Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. As a practice, I've always wanted to introduce you to new guests every episode and therefore to not have any guest on for a second time. Having no hard and fast rule on that, however, I intentionally invited Harvard Business School's Amy C. Edmondson to join us for a second time. And soon after, Gallup's chief scientist Jim Harder made it to the two-time club. And so today, I bring you our only third repeat guest. Dr. Marshall Goldsmith is routinely ranked as one of the top executive coaches in the world, and the Thinkers 50 group named him the number one leadership thinker in the world twice. Former professor of management practice at the Dartmouth Tuck School of Business, he's the author or editor of 41 books which have sold two and a half million copies. His books, Triggers, and What Got You Here Won't Get You There, have both been recognized by Amazon as being in the top 100 books ever written in their field. He's just written a new book, The Earned Life, Lose Regret, Choose Fulfillment, which just happens to be coming out today. As you'll hear me say in our conversation, while reading The Earned Life, I had the sense that Marshall's deep intention was to share some of the greatest wisdom he's acquired in over 40 years of coaching. Ideas that not only relate to elevating one's leadership effectiveness, but more specifically to elevating one's satisfaction with their entire lives. In fact, there are some ideas that he shares like, the every breath paradigm that I honestly haven't stopped thinking about since I finished reading his book. Truth be told, Marshall is also my coach. Over a year ago, he invited me to join his 100 coaches community and every Monday throughout COVID, our group has been meeting via Zoom. And his motivation, as far as I'm concerned, in coaching all of us is based upon his great generosity, not to mention a desire to earn his fulfilling life. Famous writer Tom Wolfe once wrote a book called A Man in Full, and that title most especially fits Marshall. Ladies and gentlemen, I welcome back Dr. Marshall Goldsmith. Thank you for inviting me. Very happy to be here. So first of all, Marshall, congratulations on completing your book. You are a man of great discipline, a trait that I so greatly admire, as you know. And I read your book in one sitting, and it struck me very early on that while your fundamental goal in writing it was to help readers build fulfilling and purposeful lives, your book is also inherently a distillation of some of the greatest wisdom you've acquired in your life, it seemed to me, especially through your decades of experience coaching top CEOs and senior leaders. So what I'd like to do with you is call out some of what I think are your most profound ideas and have you speak to them. How's that? Sounds wonderful. All right, wonderful. Here we go. We've all made bad decisions in life, or what you call blunders, and sometimes they appear to be so great and monumental to us that we treat them as permanent impediments to our future happiness and success. But your seemingly direct advice to people with great regrets like this is to insist that they let it go, forgive themselves, and move on. But your advice is based on Buddhist teachings and what's called the every breath paradigm. So 
this was fascinating to me, and I'd, I'd like for you to start off by explaining what this paradigm is and how we can all use it to ensure we stop torturing ourselves for all of our past failures. Well, a key component of Buddhism is impermanence, that the you that's talking to me at the end of the podcast is not the same as the you was at the beginning of the podcast, nor am I the same, that as we journey through life, we are constantly changing. Someone asked me, does Buddhism believe in reincarnation? To me, Buddhism is nothing but reincarnation. Life is just a series of reincarnations, and we're constantly starting over. So if you think, every time I take a breath, it's a new me. It's a new me. And think of the things that happened in your previous life as done by an infinite set of people called the previous shoes. So I ask people, think of those previous shoes. Think of all the gifts they have given to you that's listening to me right now. Think about all they've done to help people. Think about how hard all of those people tried. Well, if anybody did that many nice things, what should you say to those nice people? Thank you. Thank you. Now, did they make a mistake or two? Of course. Let it go. Let it go. And don't carry it around. Don't carry it around. Carrying that anger around about our previous selves makes about as much sense as carrying our anger around about others. Why? They are who they are. One of my most popular LinkedIn posts says, forgive other people for being who they are and forgive yourself for wishing they were someone else. I could have rewritten that and said, forgive the other versions of you for being who they were and forgive yourself for wishing they were someone else. So I've made this big blunder and I've been beating myself over it and I'm now taking your advice, but how do I ensure that the future me does better? Well, one thing you're focusing on right now is not focusing on the present. You really don't know what the future you is going to be doing. The one thing you can do know is take care of the present now. So the essence of my school of Buddhism is quite simple. This is heaven. This is hell. This is nirvana. Buddha was brought up very rich and was kind of brought up with the idea that you will be happy and at peace if you get more. Then he lived in a bubble. He was able to sneak outside the palace three times. The first time he learned people get old. Second time he learned people get sick. And the third time he learned people die. He thought, well, that's no good. So he went out in the woods and he lived like a hermit and he tried to be happy with less. And you know what he found out? That did not work either. Finally, Buddha learned, you can never be happy with more. You can never be happy with less. There's only one second in time you can be happy. Now, there's only one place you can ever be happy here. For everybody listening to this, this is nirvana. Listening to two old guys talk. This is heaven. <laughs> this is hell. Here it is. It's not out there someplace. It's all on the inside. So back to you. Who knows what you're going to do in the future? You don't have to worry about that. Forgive yourself now. I love that. It's very early on in the book, and it just struck me as being such a simple yet profound device. So thank you for that. You write that most of us at any age have rarely been challenged to identify a greater life purpose. So tell us why you believe that having a purpose is so essential and what prevents us from defining one for ourselves. And, you know, even a big picture description of how we can go about identifying our own purpose, if you'd like to contribute that to. Well, one thing that helped me, I talk about in the book, was going to a program by Aisha Bursell, and she asked me, who are my heroes? 
And my heroes were very kind and generous people who were great teachers. And she said, you should be more like them. It really has helped me identify my purpose. That's a great way to look at your purpose in life. And in the book, I talk about three factors for a great life. Now, let me give you a qualifier. Assuming you have great relationships with people you love and assuming that you're healthy and assuming you have at least a middle-class income, what matters in life? Well, to me, there are only three things that matter. One, you have a higher aspiration. Why are we working so hard? You need a reason why. And those are the reason why. And our aspirations are what we're becoming, and they don't have a finish line. You never reach the finish line. This is something you can strive for eternity. And the second is you have ambitions. And our ambitions are the goals that we achieve, and those are indeed time-bound. And then finally, we have our day-to-day actions. And that's as we journey through life, living in the moment, our immediate activities. So the key is an alignment to the degree that we do have a higher sense of purpose. We are achieving something that is consistent with that higher purpose. And we enjoy the journey itself. And we're engaged in the journey itself. You just won the game of life. That's about all there is to it. And there's more. I'm unaware of pretty much what it is. So that's kind of a key point in the book is looking at those three factors. And it's very important to keep asking yourself back to the aspiration question you ask, why? Why am I doing this? Why am I working? Why am I putting this effort in? Now, it's interesting because if you look at the book, most human beings in the history of the world have been focused strictly on the action phase. They had very little choice about where they lived, what they did. They were controlled. They went through life kind of stumbling through it day to day, doing what's in front of them. Nothing wrong with that. That's most of our history as a species. Some people are kind of lost in the aspiration phase in the sense that they have very lofty ideals. They don't translate them into day-to-day reality. For example, they may have lots of ideals, but they don't achieve anything to make the ideals real. Or in the case of some human service people, They love humanity. They just can't stand the real humans they interact with every day, which is very, very common. So the people I deal with, though, and the people listening to your podcast are often stuck in the ambition phase. They're achievaholics. And one thing I do in the book that's very unusual is I talk about the problem with being excessively focused on results. And a key point of the book that's really struck a chord with so many people is this never become ego attached to the results of what you're doing. Never make the results of what you're doing a statement of your value as a human being. Never base your happiness on the results of what you're doing for a couple of reasons. One, it's a fool's game because two reasons. One, you don't often control the results. I mean, before we got into this podcast, you had some technical difficulties. Mm-hmm. You, you don't have total control over everything. Things happen out there. And number two, more important, what happens after you achieve the results? Well, how much lasting happiness does that bring? A week? A day? Not much. Look at what happens to former football players after they win the Super Bowl. Disasters. Often depressed, lose all the money, get divorced. Ex-Olympic athletes, Michael Phelps read a movie about this called The Weight of Gold. After he won his 25th gold medal, he thought about killing himself. If your value as a human being is you have to beat last year and you have to achieve more and more, you've got problems. Let me give you a great case study in our LPR groups, which we can talk about later. Safi Bacall, 
Now, Safi Pakal has an IQ probably equal, Mark, to yours and mine combined. He's been on the podcast, Marshall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you know Safi. He's a smart, mm-hmm. smart guy. Genius. Wonder And nice guy. Great guy. So Safi said he really learned one thing based on all the things that I was teaching. And he thinks like a scientist. He has a PhD in physics from Stanford, started businesses, made tens of millions of dollars. He's consulted to presidents, written a best-selling book, and on and on and on. He said he finally realized something. He always found that he thought happiness was a dependent variable based on achievement. And if I achieve, I will be happy. And he finally realized that happiness was an independent variable from achievement. You can achieve a lot and be happy. You can achieve a lot and be miserable. You can achieve nothing and be happy. And you can achieve nothing and be miserable. And he said his great learning was realizing that these are independent variables and you want to achieve to achieve. And you want to be happy to be happy. But never think achievement is going to make you happy. And in Safi's case, he gave himself mediocre scores on happiness. Mm -hmm. I said to Safi, exactly how much do you have to achieve? You're a 99.999 now in terms of what you've achieved in life. Do you really think going to a 99.9999 is going to make any difference? If you're not happy at 99.9, you really think more achievement's going to matter in terms of your happiness and peace of mind? Not really. And so it was a great case study of how we fall into this trap. The great Western disease is I will be happy when followed by get the money, get the status, get the condominium, get the degree, make this achievement. I will be happy when. That's not real. There's one type of book that always has the same ending, and they lived happily ever after. (laughs) It's called a fairy tale. That's not the real world. In the real world, we constantly are reinventing our lives. We never get to a state of something where we're permanently happy and we're permanently at peace and everything is all right. Life is a constant series of re-earnings. So this idea that, you know, don't attach yourself to the outcome comes from the Bhagavad Vita. And I'd like for you to drill down on that a little bit more and tell our listeners how you can get separated or how you can separate yourself from the determination, the focus, the goals, the wanting to achieve, and then really disconnecting from the outcome. How does one actually do that? Well, if you look at the Bhagavad Gita, which is the world's oldest poem, it has some wisdom there. It's there for a reason. In the Bhagavad Gita, the protagonist has two choices, bad and worse. And he's opining his condition, this choice is very bad and this choice is worse. And what's the message from Krishna? Fine, pick bad, live with it, do your best and move on. Well, that's life sometimes. Sometimes we do have two choices. One's bad and one's worse. Okay, pick bad and be happy with it. It's the best you can do. All you can do at any second in time is your best. Harry Kramer's a wonderful member of our 100 coaches. And Harry said, Harry was challenged. Somebody said, Harry, as a CEO, you've had to fire people. You've had to lay people off. You've had to make tough decisions. How do you sleep at night? He said, I can always sleep. I just asked two questions. Did I do my best? And did I do what I thought was right? Well, that's all we can do at any second in time. All we can do is do your best, do what you think is right, and make peace. That doesn't mean you don't try to achieve goals. A good example, John Wooden. He was coach at UCLA when I was a student there. They won 88 games in a row when I was there. Mm -hmm. Longest win streak in history. And you know what John Wooden said? Just do your best. 
John Wooden said, if you do your best and be win and you win, that's great. You do your best and you lose, that's great too. All that matters is you can only do your best. Just do that and make peace with it. Uh, Coach K at Duke, very good about separating people from the past. What does he say? If they have a bad play, they get depressed. They have a good play, they're hopping up and down. He always says one thing, next play, next play, next play. Always focus on being where you are. Just focus on being where you are. I don't think it's going to help you achieve less. Ironically, it might help you achieve more because when you focus on results, you're not doing what leads to the results. You're thinking about a future that hasn't happened yet. It's brilliant. I want to go back to purpose and I want to go back to something you said a minute ago, which is that you were in a workshop and you were asked to write down the names of your personal heroes. And by heroes, it means people that you greatly admire for having qualities that I suppose you sought to create in yourself. So maybe tell us some of who your heroes are by name and then tell us what their qualities were that you admired and then how you took the advice of the person that was running this workshop and said, now go apply these to your own life. Well, this changed my life. My heroes included people like Alan Mulally, who was probably the greatest CEO in the world in the last 30 years. Although I was supposed to be his coach, I learned 10 times from him what he learned from me. Mm -hmm. Francis Hesselbein, allegedly her coach too, won the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Peter Drucker said the greatest leader he's ever met. Another hero was Paul Hersey, my old mentor, Warren Bennis, Ken Blanchard, Richard Beckhart, great people in our field who always went out of their way when I was younger to be nice to me. Hmm. They all had common qualities. They were all great teachers, and they were very generous people. They were great teachers, and they were generous. She said, you should be more like them. I decided then to adopt 15 people to teach them all I know for free. And the only price was when they got old, they should do the same thing. I made a little selfie video and put it on LinkedIn. Very primitive video, by the way. I remember it. <laughs> it turned out to be the most popular video in the history of LinkedIn. Over 18,000 people applied to be adopted. And that led to the beginning of the 100 Coaches program, which now has about 370 people. And it's just an amazing program. And we have rules. There's no money involved. There's no guilt. There's no expectations. You can ask people for anything. If they help you, great. If they can't help you, it's fine. But there's no expectation. You have to pay them back. The only expectation is just pay it forward. Do something nice for other people. Now, I'm proud to say you're a member of our fine group. What's some of your reaction to this project? You know, it was just joyful for me to read the history because I think I've told you the story before that I've, when I saw the video, I thought that you were going to be coaching people at maybe more of a junior level, people that would need coaching more perhaps than the people that you ended up assembling. And so when I realized what you were up to, I was like, oh, I really missed out. So but as I'm reading the history, I love the fact that you were inspired by your heroes to do the very same things that they had, on some level, done for you. And that became much more joyful for me. So in other words, it's not just so much of an exercise for you as much as it's really personally fulfilling for you to sort of embody the behaviors of the people that you admire greatest. Exactly. And so the whole program is dedicated to them. I love that. And what I love about it is that and the reason I asked you was specifically for our audience to think about who are their heroes 
what are their qualities, what are their behaviors, what are their characteristics, and what can you take from them and apply in your own life? That is one of the two ideas from your book that has me thinking like minute to minute, like it's constantly going through my my mind. I loved it. Marshall, another member of the Coaches 100 is somebody that I grew up in New York and admired when he played for the Jets, which is Curtis Martin for our listeners, NFL Hall of Fame player, fourth greatest running back in the history of the game. And when he was with New England, And his coach, Bill Parcells, he made the team run the field back and forth, back and forth until the whole team was exhausted. And the idea was one man was going to be left standing. And by no surprise, it was Curtis Martin. But when he did this and he could barely walk across the field, but he wasn't going to stop until he was the last man standing, Parcells said to him, I did this for a reason. Can you tell us a little bit more about that story? What was his reason and what's the the magic question? That's the big part of the book. And the reason was you can be more. He wanted to explain to Curtis, Curtis, you can be more. And I talk about Curtis is featured in the book a couple of times. I just love the guy. I mm-hmm. mean, he's been around him. He's an amazing human being. I've learned so much from him as well. And Curtis is the one that inspired Safi to change his entire view on happiness because he said, Curtis is always happy and he's achieved as much as I have. I I want to be more like Curtis. So Curtis has just been an amazing influence to me and the people in the group. And you can be more speech. I talk about that. I go through my own life and I talk about key turning points in my life. And they frequently revolved around this. You can be more message. When I was in high school from a math teacher, when I went to college, when I was getting my PhD, meeting Paul Hersey, just so many times in life, people told me, you can be more. And some of the times they said this, I was not doing poorly. Paul Hersey called me in and I was making a lot of money. My clients were happy. He said, you're not going to become the person you could be. You're running around like a chicken with your head cut off. You're just selling days. You're making a lot of money and you have happy clients. You're not going to be the person you could be. You can be more. And stuff like that just changed my life. And I think it's a very, very positive and inspirational message to give people that you believe in. And the message is you can be more. So managers, leaders listening to this, they're coaching people. How do you actually use that language? Obviously, you're going to be recognizing the potential in someone. And ideally, you're going to be using it to inspire them. But is it something that you've advised managers to use with everyone or is it a special moment? When are you applying this? I would only use it to people, one, that you think it's going to matter. And two, you Mm -hmm. really do believe they can be more, that they have really high potential that's perhaps untapped, which is not true for everybody. So I would say, who is a person you know who you really think they're not living up to the person they could be? They could be more than they are and a person who respects you enough to listen to you. I had several people in my life that without ever saying you could be more, implied it in such a direct way, and it's inspiring. And you know, one of the things I was thinking about when I was reading it is, if you said it to somebody, could they be offended by it? And I, I thought, anytime I've ever been around somebody that saw potential in me and tried to express it, either directly or indirectly, I always took it as love. I always took it as somebody sees something in me and they want the best for me. And that combination is about the greatest thing you could ever have in your life. I always viewed it as a compliment. I totally agree. Marshall, you you mentioned the importance of 
being part of a community. The fact that no man is an island and no one is truly self-made. And I'd like for you to pin down why you think community is so essential. And also, you know, because people are working much more remotely. Obviously, a lot of people are going back to work now two, three days a week, but they're still working remotely. And some people, 10% of the working population is now working 100% remote. So what are your views on that and how it impacts community? Well, you know, I think community is critically important. And over the COVID period, it really hit me. Over COVID, I worked on what's called the LPR process or life plan review. And Mark Thompson and I spent about 400 hours. We met with people every weekend. About 50 wonderful people were in this project. And every weekend, they talked about their lives and they did a report card on how they were doing. And every weekend, we worked with them and they asked everyone for help. We practiced feed forward, which is always important for what I do. And I really realized how important this was to people. They loved it. When we quit doing it for a while, everyone wanted to keep doing it. And I realized we often don't have a sense of community as we had in the past. When I came up with a hundred coaches idea, I wasn't thinking about a bigger community. I was thinking your guess when you read that was pretty much my thoughts. I thought it would be 15 young people and they'd be great and I'll be the teacher and they follow me around. And mm-hmm. that's what I was, <laughs> what you read into that was what I wrote into that. I, I didn't know Jim Kim and Alan Mulally and all these people. Well, I, know. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know they wanted to be in the group, right? And they all said, I want to be in a group. Well, I wasn't really planning on that. That was a huge surprise to me. I remember Price preaching. I'm reviewing these thousands of applications and I get this one from this guy, Price Pritchard, and I said, well, that's fascinating. How unusual. There's a famous author named Price Pritchard, a very successful guy. It's very odd that somebody has the same name as Price Pritchard. <laughs> so then I, I look, and it's him. And I called him up, and I said, I mean, you know, I've sold two or three million books. Well, you've sold about 10 million books, and, you know, you certainly don't need me. And why are you doing this? He said, I'm 74 years old, but I can still learn. And you know what I said? Well, you're in the group. And I was amazed how many people like him joined the group, very distinguished people. Uh, They didn't need status. What they got out of it or what the LPR group gets out of is a sense of community. And the reality is there's an old saying, it's lonely at the top. It used to be lonely at the top. Today, it is much lonelier at the top. People are afraid. People are afraid. They have social media. People make fun of them. They can put stuff online. It doesn't even have to be true. They have to be incredibly sensitive about what they say. People are lonely. People are afraid and lonely. I mean, they love having a sense of community where nobody's trying to be the enemy. Nobody's trying to beat you up. People are supportive of you. It's just wonderful. And also, one of the people in our group, LPR, said, it's really nice one hour a week, I get to act like a human being. Mm-hmm. Something else in your book you say is that, I think you said something along the lines of that the smartest, most accomplished people that you've ever met in your life are people who build support groups, participate, reliant on the group for help, that they assemble people in their lives that they can feel along the lines of what you just described with the 100 coaches. And you add that having relationships like these provide counsel and comfort, which I thought were just two really beautiful words. 
So I think men especially have been taught to solve their own problems, particularly like leadership problems, go away and figure it out. And I'd like for you to dispel that thinking. Well, one thing I'm very, very proud of is the role I've played in the field of coaching. The history of coaching was this was a project about fix the losers, not help the winners. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Alan Mulally really changed. I was Alan's coach at Boeing, and Alan improved more than anyone I've ever coached. I spent the least amount of time with him, and he improved the most. And the client I spent the most amount of time with didn't improve at all. So I told Alan, Alan, I made a chart here on one dimension. It was called time spent with Marshall Goldsmith. And the other dimension was called improvement. There seemed to be a negative correlation here. So I said, <laughs> Alan, Alan, the way this chart looks, you never met me. You'd really be good. <laughs> so I asked Alan, what should I learn about coaching from you? And Alan said, you have one challenge as a coach, work with great people. You work with great people, your coaching process is always going to work. And you work with the wrong people, your coaching process is never going to work. And he said, never make the coaching process about your ego and how smart you think you are and all that you've accomplished. Make it about those great people. Well, if you look at the people that endorse those books, you look at the first six or seven endorsements, those are pretty big names. Mm -hmm. They're not losers. And I'm proud of the fact that every one of them says, I need help. Every one of them gets feedback. Every one of them stands up publicly, says, I can improve. They're not ashamed to have a coach. They're not ashamed to need help. And that's one thing I need. I need help. I need help. I need help all the time. We all need help. So I think getting over that macho, I can do it on my own nonsense is great. How many of the top 10 tennis players have a coach? 10? Well, they're not ashamed to have a coach. Well, you hinted at something a minute ago. You didn't hint at it. You said it directly that, you know, the paradigm in business was <laughs> if you were failing, you got a coach. Not if you were succeeding, you got a coach. It's a crazy way of seeing it. How long before people in business, like in your career, when you started out coaching, at what point did it change where people started to think like Alan was thinking, which is to take highly talented, motivated people and coach them and supercharge them as opposed to try to save somebody from ruin? That was basically me. My whole mission in life is helping successful leaders get even better. If you do a Google search, in quotes, helping successful leaders, the first 500 hits, 450 are me. The entire rest of the world is 50. I'm kind of the inventor of that idea. Now, I can say I'm the inventor based on what Alan taught me. Alan's really the inventor. I'm the executor. How deep into your career before you figured that out? After I talked to Alan, I figured it out. <laughs> yeah, but where was that in, this, in the, on the spectrum of Oh, you? that was many years ago. Most of my career has been spent working with great people and trying to help them improve. And the only times I've failed are when my ego got in the way and I thought I could save people. I, I learned a very hard lesson that my name is Marshall Goldsmith, not Jesus Christ. So occasionally I would get into this savior complex thing and usually I would be humbled by the fact that the people I was coaching could care less and didn't get better. So thank you for going there. What's your advice to managers when they're, because we've all worked with people where you think, you know what, this person could be saved. And I'm the person to do it. And then, of course, you find out that they've got their hands on their ears and eyes and mouth, and they really want no part of it. Were you quick to kind of figure it out and just say, hey, this isn't working for us, so let's go do something else together or independently? Is that kind of how it worked for you? Or did you live out your contract and say, I gave it 20 oh, different my coaching, sessions? My coaching careers pay for results. There was no contract. 
My coaching career has always been paid for results over there. I didn't get paid anything during the entire engagement. So what I tell the people I'm going to coach is I will work with you if and only if you do the following. You are going to get confidential feedback. You are going to pick important behaviors to improve. You are going to follow up with people on a regular basis. You're going to apologize for your sins. You're going to get measured twice. And by the way, if you don't want to do any of this stuff, it's perfectly okay. I just won't work with you. I'm not here to judge you. Do whatever you want to do. You're an adult, but I don't want to waste my life. I have a funny story. Years ago, I was working in GE, and this guy reported to Jack Welch. So they called me up and said, we want you to be this guy's coach. He was a division president. We want you to be his coach. I said, well, I will work with him. He does these things. They called back. Well, he doesn't want to do those things, but <laughs> he still wants you to be his coach. I said, no, no. He said, I could just pay for results thing. I'm not going to get paid. Why should I waste my time with this guy? They call back again, forget the pay for results. We'll just give you the money. We'll just give you the money. You work with him. If it works out fine, if it doesn't work out, it's okay. You know what I said? No, I'm not going to waste my life. Mm -hmm. My time is valuable. It's my life. I'm not going to waste my life on this. No, 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 no. And they said, you can't say that to us. I said, why not? Well, we're your customer. I said, wrong. A customer is someone who sends me money. I'm not taking your money. Therefore, you are not my customer. <laughs> in, in America, we have this freedom of speech clause. I can kind of say whatever I want to say. So this then goes to Jack Welch. So you know what Jack Welch said? Now, let's see. Marshall Goldsmith, he wouldn't take money. Very bad sign. Very bad. Consultant will not take money regardless of performance. Very bad indicator. Why wouldn't he take the money? Well, the guy won't get feedback. What? He won't apologize. What? He should have apologized for years. That's part of the problem. Uh, he doesn't want to get measured. He doesn't want to follow up. Jack Wells says, you know what Jack Wells said? Fire, Fire him. him now. Yeah. Fire him. He said, if I can't pay a consultant to coach this guy, you really think I'm going to coach this guy? Exactly. Gone. Is that what happened? <laughs> Got fired. Yeah. Out, wow. out, out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, you got to meet people halfway, right? If you're not going to, and maybe it was just time for him to move on, or maybe he was just incredibly stubborn, but either way. You know what? Not my problem. Exactly. Completely right. Well done. In his book, Willpower, Roy Baumeister famously showed that the process of making choices every day represents our biggest expenditure of mental energy. And that right. our energy becomes depleted when we make choices. So I noticed this first with President Obama that he only had blue and gray suits. Right. And then, of course, you have your uniform of a green polo shirt and khakis and loafers. And you wear them every day unless it's a truly formal occasion for the very same reason. So independent of telling everyone that they should wear the same thing every day, even if we don't want to simplify our wardrobe, what other ways can we make choices with an expand, what you call an expanded sense of scale, which I thought was beautifully descriptive? What I would do is, and I, you know, I get to see President Obama and he, he told a story about wearing the two suits and two types of shirts and that's it. Well, you know. To me, I wear the same clothes every day. It's one less decision I have to make. Every day, I have the same cup of coffee at the same time. I have the same little breakfast thing. And then, you know, I'm to the degree we can make our lives follow a pattern like that, we don't have to think. And we can think about things that are a little bit more important than what color T-shirt am I going to wear. So I think any time in life you can go through life and simplify, it's great. And, you know, there's a great book called The Paradox of Choice by Barry Schwartz. I got to interview him before. He's a really good guy. And he makes a point. More choice is not inherently better at all. Mm -hmm. More choice can lead to more regrets. It can waste time. It can cause problems. 
So he said, a lot of times we're much better off with less choice. Uh, Alan Mulally is a great case study when he, who is the leader. He said, here's how you're going to behave. There was no choice. Option A, we agree to behave this way. Or option B, work someplace else. And if you don't like it, it's all right. Work someplace else. My coaching, my clients have no choice. That's it. Here's the way I coach. Do it or not. If you don't want to do it, it's fine. You mentioned Alan Mulally, who, of course, was both CEO of Boeing and Ford. And you described the meetings that he had where every week he was bringing his senior team in and they were reviewing their performance consistently and he was holding people accountable, which is this wonderful system. But you just made me want to ask you to have a description of the culture that he created in those meetings. So this wasn't a sales meeting. What was the purpose of the environment and the agreement that they all made and how they were going to behave and treat one another? One of the rules was total transparency. They had zero transparency before, and he, he moved to total transparency, no punishing people for telling the truth. You don't punish the messenger. You don't make bad comments about people. You treat people with respect. This is not rocket science. This is basic good life. And every week they would meet and go through red, yellow, green. Green is I'm on plan. Yellow is I'm not on plan. I have a strategy. And red is I'm not on plan. I have no strategy. Well, the first week he did this, red, yellow, green, 16 leaders, five priorities each, 80 people said green. It's everybody's own plan. The company's losing $17 billion <laughs> and everyone is on plan. So Alan goes, well, let's see, we're all on plan and we're losing $17 billion and we're going bankrupt. Bad plan. This is a very, very bad plan. Let's keep doing this. Finally, somebody said red and Alan stands up and applauds. He says, thank you for having the courage to say red. Thank you for having the courage to say red. You're not on plan and you don't know how to get there. And it's okay. And also, Alan didn't immediately provide solutions. You know what his philosophy is? If I'm not the expert on this topic, why am I speaking? He said, we got a lot of bright young people here in the company. Why don't we find somebody and fix the problem? Well, once everybody got over their own egos, the problem got fixed in about 10 minutes. Well, but he created this environment of psychological and emotional safety at a very senior level. That's what really stood out to me. And I think we think that when you get into meetings, and I don't know about you, perhaps not in your career, but in my career in financial services, a lot of the focus was on sales and sales performance and meeting goals and so forth. And they could become the most hostile environment imaginable. You know, you told us you were going to do this and you didn't do that. And what are you going to do about it? And like anger and, you know, you're feeling two feet small because you're getting completely excoriated by your boss in front of everybody else. That wasn't the environment that he created, which obviously was really enlightened. No, it was the opposite of the environment he created. And, you know, I mean, the stock went from 101 to 1830, 1840, went up 1,837%. And to me, even more impressive, 97% approval rating from a UAW union company for a CEO. That's unheard of. Mm -hmm. Where did he learn those instincts? Separate from the coaching that you were giving him, how did he learn to create an environment like that? You know, he's a great engineer, and I think he figured it out himself. Yeah, he's just a great, great engineer, great project manager, and just kind of figured out the system. And then what I did is I took his system and adopted it to the life plan review, which is what I did over COVID. Mm -hmm. It's basically the BPR, you're talking about business issues, they had people talk about their life issues. They would fill out daily questions every day about 
how did I do? Did I do my best to set goals? Did I do my best to make progress? Did I do my best to find meaning, to be happy, to build positive relationships? Did I do my best to be fully engaged? Every weekend, people say, here's, my, here's how I did this week. Here's what I did well. Here's what I need to do better. Please help me. Over and over and over. It's a very similar model to the BPR. I just called it the Lifespan Review, but it's based on my learnings from him. You just made me think of something that when we just describe this to our audience, when you have this hour-long meeting with the 100 coaches, you will share your thoughts and insights on an idea, and then we will all break up into smaller groups and discuss them amongst ourselves and then come back and report out to you and to everybody else. And one of the things that I've noticed is that the majority of the conversations that I've had over many, many of these meetings where the conversation is focused is on the personal application of the idea, not on the professional. It seems to me that that's like where these are all very highly successful people, but I think where their focus is, is how do I keep my whole life in balance? How do I keep my whole life successful? I don't know that anyone's ever shared that with you, but that's one of the observations I've had. That was also true in our LPR meetings. The estimate was at least 50% of the meeting was on your family life and personal life, and maybe half was on professional life. I want to change gears with you. And as someone who speaks a lot publicly, I cringed when I heard the story, but it's such a wonderful story and so insightful in the way you told it. Many years ago, you were invited to speak at a dinner event for insurance company's top executives. And as you describe them in your book, the CEO told you afterward that you offended him and pretty much everybody else in the room. That's not the outcome a speaker wants to have. And so you said the speech was a failure. And without me going into any more of the details, Tell us what you think upset him, how hearing his feedback affected you, and then the best part is how you chose to respond to immediately make amends. Well, you know, I had no bad intention. I'm not an evil person. I didn't go into the meeting to be incending people, but generally I'm very lighthearted, joking around, have a lot of fun. Well, the company had gone through some very, very serious trouble, and my behavior was completely out disconnected from where the company was. And it was seen as offensive to people and it didn't work at all. And what I did is I thought about it. I said, I'm not going to salvage this. All I can do is apologize and give the money back. So I just called him up and said, I'm sorry, there's no excuse. I, I didn't do my homework. And uh, all I can do is I can't make up what I've done wrong, but at least I can give the money back. So that's what I did. The humility in that is what stood out to me, Marshall. And just taking full ownership for it, because the company perhaps could have given you, hey, this is what's going on in our company. This is the kind of message we would appreciate hearing from you. If you could take your experience and leverage that against the challenges we face, that would help you. It doesn't sound like they did that either. Uh, well, you know, blaming the customer is seldom used. <laughs> yeah, no, I know that. But you nevertheless took full responsibility for it. And I just think it's admirable. Let me tell you, taught me about taking responsibility. It was a man back in Valley Station, Kentucky called Dennis Mudd. And when I was 14 years old, our roof started leaking. We were very poor. To save money, we had to have a new roof because the water was running in the house. Dad hired Dennis Mudd and he had me help Dennis Mudd make the roof. And Dennis Mudd was very patient with me. And he taught me about roofs a little bit. And I did my best and we did our best to build a really nice roof. And, and I was very proud and he was very proud of the roof. And then he talked to my dad, and my dad's name is Bill, and he said, you know, Bill, I want you to inspect that roof. He said, if that roof is of high quality, pay me. 
If it is not of high quality, it's all free. Now, I looked at Dennis Mudd. I was 14. You know what I said? This man has class. This man has integrity. I want to be Dennis Mudd when I grow up. I want to be. Now, I've never done anything with as much integrity as Dennis Mudd. You know why? He needed the money. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I didn't get paid, look, all right, I make plenty of money. I make some less money. Life goes on as we know it today. Dennis Mudd, this is dinner. He needed the money. And I thought, wow, that man has so much integrity that I want to be like him when I grow up. Another hero for you, Marshall. Dennis Mudd, definitely. (laughs) There you go. So, Marshall, what's a question that I haven't asked you about your book that you really want to answer? One thing we haven't talked about yet, and that is I enjoy the process. See, I love what I'm doing. I mean, at 73, I don't think I'd be doing it if I didn't enjoy it. I love what I'm doing. And half the time, as you know, the work I do is free anyway. I don't charge people for it. I just do it for fun. And I think it's very important not to get lost, so lost in achievement that all we do in life is delay gratification and joy. So one part of the book I really like is when I talk about the marshmallow studies. Now, the marshmallow research is pretty interesting. You take a kid and you give him one marshmallow. You say, if you eat one, you get one. But if you wait, you get two. Well, allegedly, the kids that ate one marshmallow become drug addicts, and the kids that eat two marshmallows, <laughs> they'll, they'll get PhDs from Harvard or something like right, that. Right. Well, I'm exaggerating a little, but not too much. The message was delayed gratification is good. Almost every self-help book in the world says delayed gratification is good. Here's how you do a better job of delayed gratification over and over and over. The research didn't do something, though. The research didn't take the kid that got two marshmallows and say, kid, wait a little bit more. You're going to get three. Wait some more. Four, five, ten, a hundred, a thousand. Where does the story end? Story ends with an old man sitting in a room waiting to die, surrounded by uneaten marshmallows. Mm -hmm. Never having lived. Never having eaten the marshmallows. And then the other story I like that's related is the Jack Welch story again, where Jack Welch, he has a triple bypass. He almost dies. And my friend Mark asked him, he said, well, Jack, what'd you learn about life when you almost died? What was your reflection? You know what he said? Why am I drinking the damn cheap wine every night? Well, Jack, Jack Welch has got his incredible wine collection, right? And he's, quote, waiting for the wine to appreciate in value. You know what he said? That's insane. I'm Jack Welch. I'm rich. What does it matter if the wine appreciates in value? I'm not going to drink the cheap wine anymore. What am I thinking? Well, Jack Welch was so geared to make money and investments and all that stuff, he forgot to enjoy the wine. Well, drink the wine, eat the marshmallow. Every now and again, you got to enjoy life. And the real key to me, though, is if you do all three simultaneously. One, you have a higher purpose. Two, you're achieving in a way that's consistent with that purpose. And three, you love the process. And Kelly and I, my daughter, did some research on this. And our research is pretty clear. People who are working on a task toward achievement and they enjoy the process of what they're doing and they feel it's meaningful have incredibly high satisfaction with life. If you take out either happiness or meaning, you really cut back on satisfaction with life. If all you're doing is things that are meaningful, but you don't enjoy, you're kind of a victim or a martyr in life, and you're going to die anyway, and you didn't have any fun. If you're just trying to do what you enjoy without meaning, well, you're just amusing yourself to death. The key to a great life is if at the same time, look, I'm doing something, and I'm making an achievement, and it's connected to something in my life that matters, a higher a higher aspiration, and I love doing it. 
That's it. Why do we need to have a triple bypass before we uh, get that epiphany? Well, you know, I, I tell a story in my book, Triggers, of three medical doctors that I coached. Uh, you know, Jim Kim, simultaneous MD from Harvard and PhD in anthropology in five years, who became president of Dartmouth, head of the World Bank. John Noseworthy, who was CEO of the Mayo Clinic, and Ross Shaw, head of the U.S. Agency for International Development at 37. Now he's head of the Rockefeller Foundation, all members of our group, by the way. And I individually talked to him and said, on a typical day, one to 10 scale, how happy were you on an average day? All three had the same answer. It never dawned on me to try to be happy. It never dawned on me to try to be happy. I was too busy achieving things. Now, they're all medical doctors. So I said, did it dawn on you? You're going to die? Did they cover that one in medical school, that death thing? I said, yeah, they covered death in medical school. I said, you think it's a silly or stupid question? This is a very important question. I just forgot to ask. Well, don't get so busy chasing some result. You forget to enjoy life. Amen. Everyone, let's take a very quick break here, and we're going to return with the heartbeat round. A quick reminder, Mitel Networks is this podcast's sole sponsor because it fully embraces our message of empathy, compassion, and caring as a means to elevating workplace leadership all around the world. Mitel also loves the upcoming Heartbeat Round segment and invites you to learn more about them at mitel.com forward slash Mark. Marshall, we're going to take a brief departure from our conversation and move into what we call the heartbeat round. And since you were a guest once before, you'll recall that the questions I'm about to ask you are more personal and current. We want you to answer them all in a heartbeat. Are you game? I'll do my best. All right, here we go. The lesson the COVID pandemic came here to teach us. Have a support group. Something only writing this book has taught you. Make peace with what is. The most underestimated leadership trait or practice. Patience. A spiritual place you love most. Now. Your top piece of advice to managers who seek to become highly effective coaches. Get feedback, pick improvement, follow up, and get better. One book of any genre you wish everyone in the world would read. Old Path White Clouds by Tick, T-H-I-C-H, Knock, N-H-A-T, Hong. Old Path White Clouds. Your synonym for the word heart. Love. Quality that derails the most leadership careers. The need to prove you're smart or right. Lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life. Don't have to prove you're smart or right. <laughs> Besides love, what does the world need more of? Connection. The trait you most admire in other people. Three, courage, humility, and discipline. Skill improvement you're working on right now. Courage, humility, and discipline. <laughs> I love you, Marshall. Very well done. Thank you, sir. All right. So before you go, you have to tell us a little bit more about the earned life and the value and even importance of striving to have an earned life. So before you go, Marshall, I want to give you the stage and just leave us with any insight from your book that you want us thinking about long after you've left the, the airspace. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to give you an insight, not from my book, but an insight in life that is the most important insight I try to share with people. And that's the best advice I can ever give you is take a deep breath. Imagine you're 95 years old and you're just getting ready to die. Right before you take that last breath, you're given a beautiful gift, the ability to go back in time and talk to the person that's listening to me right now. The ability to help that person be a better leader, more important, have a better life. 
what advice would the wise 95-year-old you who knows what mattered in life and what didn't and what was important and what wasn't, what advice would that wise old person have for the you that's listening to me right now? Just breathe. Whatever you're thinking now, do that. In terms of performance appraisal, that's the only one that will ever matter. That old person says you did the right thing, you did. That old person says you made a mistake, you did. You don't have to impress anybody else. Some friends of mine interviewed old folks who were dying and asked this question. On the personal side, three themes. Theme number one, and I talk a lot about it in the book, be happy now. Skip that I'll be happy when great Western disease stuff. Be happy now. Number two, friends and family. Don't get so busy climbing the ladder of success you forget the people that love you. And then number three, back to that higher aspiration, if you have a dream, go for it. If you don't go for it when you're 30, you probably won't when you're 50 or 80. And Mm -hmm. business advice isn't much different. Number one, have fun. Life is short. Have fun and do whatever you can do to help people, not because of money or status or getting ahead, because a 95-year-old you is going to be proud of you because you did, disappointed if you don't, and also go for it. The world is changing. Your life is changing. Do what you think is right. May not win. At least you tried. And then finally, my goal on this, our little podcast, pretty simple. If a few people listening have a little bit better life as a result of our time together, it's an incredibly good use of our time. I love that. And you know what, Marshall? I'm absolutely certain they will all over the world. So thank you so very, very much for joining me. I have a practice of not having guests on more than once, just so that the audience is getting new flavors, new ideas. But with you, sir, I wanted to make an exception because of this. Everything that you shared is just so wonderful. It's just been a joy for me to spend time with you. Oh, thank you so much. It's been my honor. Best to you and best of success with your book, Marshall. Thank you. Thank you. The Earned Life at all the bookstores and every place else. Thank you. Operators are standing by. Okay, great. Thank you. I thank you. Before we go, I wanted to mention that three different PhD students at the University of Massachusetts Global just earned their doctorate degrees by doing additional and deep research on the Lead from the Heart thesis. I was able to attend two of these dissertation meetings and to hear about the work that they did. And it wasn't just a huge honor for me. It was a profound confirmation that everything we talk about on this podcast is slowly but surely manifesting in our workplaces. We've started a movement and it's finally taking hold. Our brilliant theme music is the jazz classic, Take the A-Train, written by Billy Strayhorn nearly 75 years ago and is performed by the extraordinary BBC Big Band Orchestra. As always, I want to thank my talented and wonderful team, Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Randy Yant, Carrie Finnessy, and my producer, Eric Oz. And I leave you now with my two constant reminders. Number one, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. And number two, love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Mm-hmm.